Folks, welcome to the maiden voyage of On the Tape. My name's Guy Adami. You know me from CNBC's Fast Money. I'm joined by my dear friend Dan Nathan, also of CNBC's Fast Money. We're also joined with the great Danny Moses. You know him from the big short, but he is a famed hedge fund investor. We're calling ourselves On the Tape. Dan Nathan, welcome. Guy, great to be with you. Great to be with you. Danny Moses, really excited about the opportunity. I love the podcast format. I'm a big consumer. I know that this is probably the first podcast that you will ever listen to, Guy Adami. Um, but hopefully, you know, you're going to kind of come to see what it means for all those people for all those years who said that you have a real face for radio. I'm just going to substitute podcasts in there. But, you know, listen, I'm really excited about the opportunity to do this podcast. You and I have each night on CNBC's Fast Money, we have a fast-paced show. We're talking about what just happened. We're talking about what might happen next. This show is really going to be a longer form debate format, and I'm really excited about that. So great to be with you guys. I'm excited as well. And we met Danny Moses on the set of Fast Money. It's got to be a couple years ago. And we asked Danny what the next big long was. And he talked about cannabis and he couldn't have been more correct. But obviously, Danny has a much different view of the world than maybe Dan and I do. What I think on the tape is about is bringing three people that view the market in three very different ways. We're going to be edgy. We're going to be fun. We're going to be informative. And hopefully, we're going to be somewhat entertaining for you. But Danny Moses, what does On The Tape mean to you? First of all, it's great to be with you guys. Great to have met you a couple of years ago. I'm glad we've stayed in touch and we can do this. You know, I like to talk to investors, talk to the consumer, try to make them a little bit smarter if I can. I think together, the three of us can really help do that in an entertaining manner. I want to be interactive. I want to be able to, to get feedback from people on it. And again, it's just our opinion. These are not investment recommendations. We probably have to caveat by saying that. But I do think that this is needed in the marketplace. And I think that kind of I would call this a cynical view or an honest view of the markets um, without worrying about repercussions of speaking your mind. So, you know, to me, it's a real outlet uh, to get that out there. And we welcome all opinions and looking forward to having great guests on as well. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of great guests on, and we're going to call those segments off the tape. And as a matter of fact, we have a great guest today that we're going to go off the tape with a little bit later. But first, I want to say exactly that. We're going to be honest to a fault. I think that's something at least you've gotten to know from Dan, Nathan, and myself over the years. And you should know that from Danny Moses as well. He's going to tell it and say it like he sees it. And I think that's what's going to make this so interesting. So let's get right into it. I mean, we're two weeks into 2021. We're coming off the Senate runoffs in Georgia, fiscal stimulus. Joe Biden spoke last week. We had a lot of things going on. You know, in terms of where the money's going, I saw JP Morgan's earnings report and their deposits were up 37% quarter over quarter, which is staggering, $528 billion. So clearly the money's going someplace. But a lot of this goes back to some of the themes we talked about in 2020, Danny Moses, and that was the gamification of the stock market and all the ancillary things off the back of that. Can you start to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's a large group of people that have obviously been stuck at home, have money to spend that have the following. They have a DraftKings account, they have a Coinbase account, and they have a Robinhood account. And unfortunately, for better or for worse, I think there's a lot of people that view those risks, risk-adjusted returns in the same way. And so when you talk about something like DraftKings, which we can go into, which I think is a Great company. I think it's obviously the, the premier online gambling platform. And I think because what you just mentioned, Guy, about uh, the Senate runoffs in Georgia, but more importantly, where the federal debt levels are and where the deficit is, is going to be a great source of taxable revenue for state and local and federal government. So I think when you talk about 
DraftKings per se. I think that they're sitting in the right place at the right time. However, back to my original point on the gamification, when you have guys transferring, guys or girls transferring money out of a DraftKings account with a parlay on the Lakers and the Rockets, taking that and buying Bitcoin, making a quick hit, and then turning around and opening Robinhood, I think there's a lot to take apart there. So, I mean, I'll turn it over to, to uh, Dan here, maybe talk about how DraftKings came to be, which was a SPAC, and maybe talk about the SPAC environment a little bit. And uh, Dan, love to get your thoughts. There. Well, it's funny, you know, th- that is obviously um, a bit of a symptom of just kind of the low rates and a lot of money sloshing around the system um, and a lot of demand for risk assets. But I'll, I'll go take uh, take a step back here. You know, if you think about 2020 and, you know, you guys use that term gamification, and, and I think it's really interesting that DraftKings really conditioned a whole demographic to think about sports in a different way, right? With daily fantasy. And then once with the legal sports betting just really proliferating over the last couple of years or so, then all of a sudden, to your point, you have money being pushed into people's bank accounts. They can't work. All of a sudden, though, you know, there are no sports. What are they going to do? Well, they went right into the stock market, right? And they didn't know a whole heck of a lot about what they were doing, but the stock market started going up and late March. And it started going up at the sort of pace that is just kind of unheard of. If you think about it, we had a 20% rally in in a matter of, uh, I want to say a week or two in late March into early April. And people started to think this was kind of easy, right? And so technology really enabled that, you know, a big theme of 2020, I think when we look back, is going to be very clear, the acceleration of certain technological trends that were already in place, but just kind of moving up in a matter of months, just kind of pulling forward like six, seven years or so. We saw it in e-commerce. Obviously, we saw it in sports in gambling and online uh, trading, that sort of thing. So to me, that's really the main story of this and just this whole demographic being conditioned to gamble legally on their phone, whether it be uh, the stock market, whether it be on sports, whether it be on crypto. I'm sorry, but Danny, I have some views on this and I want to hear yours. So I'll play devil's advocate for a second and say that and in some ways, the Dave Portnoy's of the world and this gamification, maybe it's a good thing. You know, maybe we brought in millions of investors that but for the fact that sports was gone and nothing to bet on, they would have never known the stock market. Now, listen, clearly at some point they're going to learn the hard way, but at least they're in the market right now and they're learning to a certain extent. Am I way off base there, Danny, or is there something to that? Oh, there's definitely a learning curve. Unfortunately, I think we're at the, at the top of the curve here. And- Robinhood, for instance, nothing against getting access to people getting oh, being able to open accounts and trade the markets. But it really obviously reminds everyone that's old enough uh, from 1999 and 2000 about E-Trade and so forth and the access to the market. The problem with this is that the majority of the people that are opening up Robinhood accounts haven't seen a bear market yet. Yes, we've had iterations where there's been you know, a staircase up elevator down in the market when we had the you know initial COVID scare. Obviously, that was a, a big drop. We've had a couple of interest rate bumps up higher that have driven the market down over the last several years, but there hasn't been a steady. So the Fed's had your back. And unfortunately, to use the quote bag holder, who's going to be left? And listen, I think Robin Hood, I actually think the motto is the opposite of what it's intended for. I think it's uh, stealing from the poor and giving to the rich here, because I think over time, the people that are left holding the bag are going to learn the hard way. So I hear you. It's right place, right time for a product. I'm hearing about valuations. You know, they're obviously... um, looking to go public here. I've heard some crazy numbers of what this thing may be worth, but you know, we'll see. Just remember, Robinhood was started by software guys that were catering to the high frequency trading, which is many episodes down the road I'm sure we can talk about. But So I'll turn it back to you, but it, it will be a hard lesson and easy access comes with a price. 
Yeah, no question about it. And there are a number of things going on here. Obviously, we're talking about DraftKings, the gamification, but that's manifesting itself in terms of cryptocurrency, Coinbase. I mean, we're seeing it all across the spectrum. And you're also seeing it in SPACs. And I know Dan Nathan has a lot of views about this. He's extraordinarily well-versed in SPACs. So, Dan, in terms of that world, you know, what are you seeing? What are your thoughts on not necessarily what SPACs are, but what they mean to the marketplace right now? Yeah, I think if you look at 2020, it was the biggest year in equity issuance since the year 2000. And we know what that really meant. That was a lot of technology issuance back then. There was a lot of companies that did not have profits. Some didn't even have material revenues at the time, right? They had ideas and there was tremendous demand for what people thought was just a life-changing technology as it relates to the internet and how it was going to seep into lots of different parts um, of the economy. Well, you know, it ended up being that there was a stock market bubble around that. And, you know, that's not just about the issuers, that's also demand for that. And that goes into uh, an area that I think Danny Moses is obviously fairly well versed in as it relates to behavioral finance. You know, you can't just blame the bankers and the companies with the great idea for a stock market mania. There's a lot of blame that needs to be placed on those looking to kind of get rich kind of quick in a way. The SPACs, We've seen this product around for for decades now. Um, We saw the last big bout of it was right before the global financial crisis. Maybe I'll let Danny speak to that. I think the fact that we saw SPAC issuance of over, I think it was $80 billion. That's leaving about 200, 250 management teams that have raised this capital looking for private companies to take public. And so the question is going to be for 2021, are we going to see a lot of companies come to market that really shouldn't be publicly traded companies, managements who are not ready to be publicly traded um, C-level executives, that sort of thing. And we just don't know the answer to that. You know, the returns have been fantastic. And, you know, the low interest rate environment has made it kind of, uh, for institutional investors, very attractive to uh, invest in these vehicles, especially with some very well-vetted, well-experienced teams out there, sponsored teams who've raised this capital. But we're not going to know the returns of these SPAC mergers and these companies coming to market for at least a year or two. I suspect that there's going to be some very famous blow-ups in 2021. We know that there was that Nikola blow-up in 2020. That came kind of quickly. And so, you know, every big period of market speculation is always bookended with some sort of, I don't know if you want to call it fraud or some sort of just over-exuberance where that product gets taken to the woodshed. SPACs will be one of them. But in the meantime, there's a lot of great opportunities, a lot of great companies coming to market through them. So, you know, I'm trying to be a little both-sided here. The good news is that people are making money doing them right now, the bad news is going to be on the other end. You know, Danny Moses, I'm going to go back to you. I know people always ask you, what's the next big short? You know, any similarities between now and what you saw 12 years or so ago? But, you know, SPACs is a fascinating thing. And I will ask you the question, what are you seeing? Are there similarities between SPACs today and the real estate market in 2008, 2009? I mean, are there companies that are not IPO worthy making their way to the public market in the form of SPACs? I think that's there's two answers to that. First, just to talk about SPACs in general, I think Dan hit it right on the head that the low rate environment from an opportunity cost perspective has enabled people to just, you know, want to put money in a SPAC, you're getting 25 basis point return, if, if anything, but what's your off, you know, what would you be getting there if you weren't in that? So I think that has allowed, and listen, low rates is not just impacted the origination of SPACs. It's actually made money fly into the equity market to you know get some type of return. The SPACs, there will be some successful ones. There will be some that don't. And I think Dan's point and what's similar to 1999, 2000, not necessarily real estate, 
But in terms of you know, a lot of companies that were going public, I would call them more in the tech telecom area, that really were just taking advantage of over-exuberance in the market and know that there was a buyer for them. If there had SPACs had been as popular back then, you would have actually seen the same thing. So companies that, to Dan's point, that were not IPO ready and people, instead of sh shoot first, ask questions later, it's buy first, ask questions later. And people learn the hard way there, you know, first earnings report out of the gate once these companies are public, what does it mean? The thing with SPACs is that they're actually allowed to give forecasts, unlike you would traditionally on an, on an IPO roadshow. So that's, you could say that's an advantage or that's, they're not going to be held to it. Uh, you can get to market quicker. So if you have an idea or a concept and you're looking to liquefy your, you know, your business, it's a quicker way to do it. And now you're getting name brands coming in into the SPAC market. And so you're actually trading. It's more of a marketing product than it is. So you're having SPACs come out that have not identified a target that are trading up just on the brand name. And that's, maybe that's a, not a bad thing or a good thing because people with track records are actually coming out, you know, really doing it. The key here, though, is so if I'm going to be bullish on SPACs for a minute. So Dan mentioned there's been over $80 billion that's, you know, that came out in 2020. That does not include the amount of money that was raised in these pipes. So once you announce a target, the key is to look and see how successful the pipe was in conjunction with when they announced the target of the company. Forget about valuation and trying to figure out what this thing's going to trade on in 2022. Who are the people that participated in the pipe? Are they good backwards? Are they long-term holders? Are they institutions? And there is a professionalization going on in the SPAC market. And again, but it will bifurcate. And there will be massive winners and massive losers here. And to Dan's point on Nicola, you guys, you know, mentioned, there'll be many more of those. But at the same time, you look, cannabis market, you know, there's SPACs that are now playing in that area. The traditional investment bankers would not IPO those. Same with the online gambling companies up until a year ago. So now you have private equity, which you would have thought would have been competing with SPACs. So if I'm a PE firm, and I go, hold on a second. We're trying to raise money. We know the targets. Now what's happening? PE funds are not only participating. I think they're looking through their portfolios and saying, all right, guys, what can we get rid of here? <laughs> that's potentially not a great asset and calling SPAC originators and selling it to them, to these companies. So keep your eye out on who the sellers are, who the buyers are, and really be smart and, and do your work. But again, I'd be very wary once these companies go public on that first quarterly report or the first guidance and compare that to what you thought was going to occur when they were on the roadshow. And I'll leave it at that. But listen, it doesn't matter if it's a SPAC, if it's, if it's a global telecom company, Guy, to your point, it all, history always repeats. And so or it rhymes at least, I should say. So, you know, I'll leave it at that. I'll turn it back over to you on that. No, and I appreciate that. And I think that's entirely true. And if you've watched Fast Money over the last 14 or so years, you'll know I am no fan of the United States Federal Reserve. And I'm not a fan of central banks in general. I think, and I've said this, and I'll say it on this podcast, I think some of the great villains of this century are going to be central bankers. Not that they're uh, bad intentions. I think they're great intentions with disastrous outcomes. And I think we're seeing a lot of it right now. You know, when you have the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, talk about effectively, I'm paraphrasing, that valuations don't matter in this interest rate environment, that's problematic. And I think so much of this has led to pushing people out the risk curve in places where they probably shouldn't be. And oh, by the way, and not to get too granular, you know, the Fed talks about no inflation. There's inflation in all the wrong places. And as the dollar, U.S. dollar, continues to diminish in value and as rates continue to go higher, I will tell you, folks, that is extraordinarily inflationary. We have a Fed that's basically doubled their balance sheet over the course of the last six months. And you have things right now where I think global sovereign bonds is either side of 30 percent of global sovereign bonds now have negative yields. I mentioned that because that all comes back in home to roost in some of the things that Danny Moses is talking about now. 
That's what concerns me, and that's what keeps me up at night. But quite frankly, the U.S. stock market doesn't be concerned about it at all. With that, Danny, I'm going to ask you, within this Robinhood world that we live in, you know, IPOs, it's fascinating over the last couple of months. We've seen companies price at a certain point, and then when they open, they open two, two and a half times of that IPO price. I find that to be offensive. I'm just curious. When you see that, do you say, oh, my God, I've seen this before, and I saw it 21 years ago in 1999? Oh, yeah, for sure. That is that is uh, emblematic of kind of what's going on. Yeah, of course, you're seeing people that just want to, again, thematically grab something. And I think when you think about Bitcoin and the entire crypto world, and you think about kind of electric vehicles, you are spawning off. Are they both here to stay? Yes. But you are thematically creating all these other companies. These companies, I don't blame them, are taking advantage of people's excitement about the space. But if you were to add up market caps, both in crypto and in, you know, you know, electric vehicles, not to pick on that sector too much, but you know how I feel about some of those companies in there. The math just probably doesn't work. So again, some of the parts do the math, but yes, it does it doesn't matter what the asset class is. Let's focus on that for a second, because if you look at EV and we know that Tesla is, you know, seven hundred billion of that, let's call it a trillion dollars, right? And if you look at the entire market cap, uh, including Bitcoin of you know everything else, it's about a trillion dollars, right? And so when we think about the S P five hundred, we know that Apple is two trillion, uh, Microsoft, Amazon getting close to two trillion, Google one and a half or so these are becoming something that I, I think investors have to pay attention to if they were listed in the S&P 500, that sort of thing. So, you know, at the end of the day, you, you said the math doesn't work. I don't disagree with that. I, I don't know how Tesla can have a market cap that is equal to every other automaker the planet over with less than one and a half percent of a global auto market share. I mean, that's that's the math I think you're talking about, correct, Danny? Yeah. Listen, it comes. It's it's pretty simple. The you know the Fed is pumping money into the markets and it's finding its way. A trillion here, a trillion there. The Federal Reserve owns twenty three percent of all U.S. Treasuries outstanding right now. Twenty three percent. Just to put that in comparison, I think back in the crisis, at the like 2009, before they started this whole QE mantra, it was 7%. Like, does not end well. But it also tells you how much money is being printed out there and it needs to find a home. So if I'm a crypto guy, I'm taking, I'm looking at that both ways. I'm saying, well, this is perfect. Not only are they pumping money in that I can chase crypto, they are solving for me because my whole belief in owning crypto is these currencies are fiat anyway. And the paper is not real. So if they're just going to print into oblivion, it's a double reason, right? You have you have a, much, a ton of liquidity chasing it. So listen, there are massive things at work here. But to Guy's point about rates, rates will ruin everything. And if rates were to go up, we're nowhere near where there's a problem yet. 110 basis points on the 10-year yields. We won't go into all the numbers. But there is there are a couple things out there. When you look at S&P 500 dividend yield, which I think is around 1.6, 1.7%. Don't quote me on that. When tenure starts to cross that and, and the bond market sells off to that point, then you have to answer, then you have to pay the piper. And I'm not going to make a call on the market unless you told me that rates are going up. And we've all seen together, the three of us, in the last five or six years, when they tried to stop QE or they tried to raise rates, what happened? So until that happens, you could argue that, Dan, these chases can go on and people can dream the dream. But yes, I think the math makes, the, the, the tangible math in you know electric vehicles makes less sense when you have the incumbent auto companies that are now exploring their way in and really making progress in a much more efficient manner and will commoditize that group to a degree. And I, I, think, this, I think that the technology will even out of all the companies having it. And that's very different than crypto, which has an unknown 
use at this point blockchain but starting to get there so long-winded answer but um i think i, I think i addressed some of it and dan nathan i want to go back to you real quick because obviously we talked about Robinhood. we talked about effectively the gamification of the stock market which i adhere to i absolutely believe in where you cut your teeth in wall street is a derivatives market the options market and historically options were used for a very specific reason they were used to hedge portfolios or to make directional bets. Now people seem to be using these as gambling vehicles, and I think it's extraordinarily dangerous. I know you have pretty strong views on this, Dan, but you know the Robinhood trader, trading options in a historic fashion. What's your yeah, thoughts, Yeah, I think Dan? we have to go back and think about how Robinhood was, was built. It was built as an app. It was built for a mobile, digital-first um, consumer, right, that, that has kind of grown up with these technologies. I, I suspect they hired a lot of people um, away from um, some of the most addictive product companies that have ever kind of been on this planet since maybe Coca-Cola. And you know who they are. There's just all these social media companies, right? So they build a product that they knew would be addictive, that was an easy on-ramp, that was easy to use. Um, and listen, all the power to them. It, it, it is a great product, but you have to kind of be armed with some knowledge about what you're doing. So you talk about options. We know there was a very high-profile situation um, last year where one of their customers at Robinhood did not understand um, you know, the calculations of his balance and he ended up committing suicide, left a note speaking uh, specifically to that. I suspect they've taken some great measures to kind of rectify that. But at the end of the day, Guy, what you're talking about is that in, in 2020, options um, on U.S. exchanges, the volumes increased 50% year over year, okay? It was just tremendous. And then when you look at the breakdown between what you can identify as institutional, you just mentioned that they used to be used for hedging and you could see large institutional blocks. When you started to see the ones and two lots of options in very speculative names and they were in the EV stuff and the SPAC stuff and a lot of kind of SaaS, you know, in the technology space, it was just pure speculation. People didn't know what the heck they're buying options on. All they knew they were doing is buying a lottery ticket on something that had been moving. So that was a very dangerous situation. That's not going to end particularly well. The whole nature of options are that they are meant to decay and go away if you are don't have the proper movement relative to expectations. So to me, I suspect that this options volume that we're seeing is the mark of a massive, massive frenzy. Um, and it's likely to kind of end very, very badly very soon. So, Danny, when we first met on a set of Fast Money, you talked about cannabis when really nobody was talking about cannabis at all. Now, it seems to be on the front, you know, the front page of almost every newspaper and on everybody's lips. In terms of the 2021 outlook, I think a lot of it has to do with what happened over this election, what's going on with some of these stimulus packages and how cannabis can be the winner going forward. I know you have some thoughts. I would love to hear them. Yeah. So during 2020, prior to the election, the kind of the cannabis market was setting up between the winners and the losers. Companies that were well-funded, had learned from their experiences in the last two to three years, had learned from the missteps of people like MedMen, what not to do, that set up corporate governance the right way, that actually started to attract institutional capital that kind of crossed over and found an excuse how to, how to trade it. And they pulled back from the massive expansion and really focused on bottom-up expansion in various states. And that, that's the part that's important here. So the source of revenue for these local governments and, and on the federal level is too big now to ignore. But at the same time, you know, 95% of U.S. consumers approve of medical 
cannabis and over 65 to 70 now approve of adult use. So you're seeing the states where it's medical only expanding rapidly, programs are taking off and people are really starting to see this and accept it. It no longer has a negative connotation or stigma that it had and people are using it to go to sleep. You know, people are using it for pain people, and they're finding a substitute for some of these prescription drugs which have other effects. And so as people learn more and it reaches the consumer, we're, we are now gonna enter guy in 2021 where branding will finally matter. Before the connoisseurs or the main consumers of cannabis were people that really understood or had smoked a long time in their lives. Now you're bringing a new entrant in. And so now you're going to get with law changes that might happen in Washington. And if we pass some bill out of the Senate Finance Committee that addresses the ability of these companies to one list on exchanges, because keep in mind, it's still the Canadian companies that are the only ones that are listing on the U.S. exchanges for the most part. Cheaper cost of capital for these companies, because right now their access to capital is mainly through sale lease back of their properties and they're paying 18 to 20 percent. So you're going to have a confluence of you know of events here where cost of capital drops, access to the product goes up. They fix the tax code with these companies that are still driving Brinks trucks to deliver cash. They can't do payroll yet. They can't provide insurance and benefits to their employees. It's just so we are still in the early stages of structurally doing this. And we are going to look back in five years from now, and this will be like alcohol or any other, if you want to call it a vice, you know, as a matter of fact, this has been talked about before, but in the jurisdictions where cannabis is most popular, alcohol sales are down. And if they're not down, their growth rate is slowing. And you're looking at some of these alcohol companies, which have already come into the space. You know, you've already seen Molson come into the space. You saw Constellation come into the space. Yes, maybe a little bit too early, but I'll tell you this, the bad taste in the mouth of cannabis from 2018 and 19 was twofold. One was that the only way to express a trade for U.S. investors in 2018 and 19 was really through the companies in Canada. They were overvalued and the size of Canada is less than half the states in the U.S. in terms of the cannabis market. And the second thing to happen was the vape crisis. And the, and the problem was that there was no federal answer or no way for these companies to fight back and say, listen, these were illegal, illicit vapes cartridges. If we had had regulation, that wouldn't have happened. So we got through those big things. These companies now, you're going to have massive winners. There's massive M&A going to be occurring now. And with the change in Washington, I think this is probably the greatest, the best macro trade. It's still out there and it's still early inning. So I could go on, but uh, I, I think it's pretty exciting. No, and I appreciate that. And I know, Dan, you have some thoughts, just some about what you're looking for in 2021. Quickly, what I'll say for me personally is I don't think people are paying enough attention to interest rates. I think 2021 will be the year that we talk about rates exploding to the upside and the Fed losing control of the bond market. And I think that's going to manifest itself in a number of different ways. The fact that the dollar continues to go lower for me personally is extraordinarily concerning. And as we get into 2021, I think everybody should be focused on those two things because I think that will be the tell for where the equity markets go. So Dan, before we go off the tape with our special guest, just love to hear some of your thoughts as we close this segment out. Yeah, I can't agree with you guys more about interest rates. You know, I don't know how the Fed will kind of nail the landing. I'm not saying that I'm questioning that they will or not. Um, I'll just say the near term, at least through the equity market lens, there seems to be a, a continued great deal of complacency. The optimism about this additional $1.9 trillion in stimulus, followed by the potential for an infrastructure plan, coupled with the uh, vaccine really kicking into full gear at some point this spring and summer, has the 
the potential just to kind of unleash the sort of euphoria that our market and our economy at the same time have not seen probably ever, not to this scale or so. So at the end of the day, though, I'm looking near term at some indicators about the equity market, whether it be short interest in the S&P 500 ETF, the SPY at record lows, whether it be put call ratios in the S&P 500 at levels not seen in more than a decade. The, the level of complacency, obviously, we could think about the VIX a little bit, the S&P 500 volatility index also trading at levels before the market crashed uh, back in February. Um, it just seems to be a, a great deal of optimism. I can't find a skeptic. It can't find a skeptic in crypto. I can't find a skeptic in the IPO craze and certainly not in the broad market. So to me, that would be a big focus. And I think to your point, and Danny said it earlier, you know, if you look back over the last five years or really going back to 2013 with the taper tantrum, every time interest rates have gotten to a level, whether it was 3% back in 13, whether it was 3% in 2018. What is that level now? It might be 1.5% in the 10-year Treasury yield. So we're going to see soon enough what corrects markets. Guys, despite me, that was an amazing conversation. But now we're going to go off the tape with somebody that we've gotten to know over the last few months, Sawhill Bloom. Sawhill is an investor and advisor to multiple startups. He graduated from Stanford. I applied to Stanford, but when I did my interview, I said the Stanford Cardinals they hung up the phone. I digress. He was a pitcher on the Stanford baseball team. Sawhill, it is amazing to have you with us today on the tape. A pleasure to be here, guys. Sawhill, it's Dan here. Thanks for joining us this morning here. You know, listen, you and I got to know each other over Twitter last year. Um, some of your financial threads really focused on financial literacy, obviously markets and the economy. You know, we met IRL guy, as the kids say, that's in real life in the fall. You took financial Twitter by storm in 2020. How did that come about? How did you gain this interest? And how did you get the momentum? You have a massive following here. And so we're really excited to have you to talk about that and actually discuss one of your specific tweets from today. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate it. And look, it happened by accident. Uh, and I say that with, with all honesty, you know, back in back in May, you had this environment where you guys know better than me, the market was soaring, and the economy just seemed like it was in the tank. And I had so many friends from my baseball days, my family, all these people reaching out to me because I was their resident finance guy, you know, asking the question, what's going on? How is this possible? Uh, how do we have this type of environment right now? And I was trying to figure out a way to get that across in a digestible way, in an accessible way that anyone could understand. And so I just wrote kind of a parable, allegory, whatever you want to call it, basically a story to explain how that can happen in a market. And so I posted it on Twitter. It was kind of my first thread. I had a few hundred followers at the time. And much to my surprise, it got picked up by a bunch of big accounts, got shared. All of a sudden, I had a couple thousand followers. And so it just started to hit me that, you know, maybe there's a market for this. Maybe there are a lot of people out there that want to understand more about what's going on in the economy and the markets in the world, but feel like everything they see from the financial media and mainstream financial institutions is just too jargon heavy. It's made to be complex. And I started realizing you know, maybe it's not nefarious, but the entire world, mainstream financial world is built around keeping the insiders in and keeping the outsiders out. And that just doesn't sit right with me. And so I started using my Twitter as a way to kind of break down that wall, basically cut through all the jargon, use really simple terms and started doing it. And, you know, I call it 101s, basically the very simple high level information that most people 
it's, it's all they need to know. They, they get, get information on a topic and can move on. Uh, and so I started doing that and it's built uh, quite a following. As you said, I'm, I'm blown away by it, very humbled by it. Uh, and it's been pretty fun run. So what have you learned? You know, it's, it's really interesting. Obviously, you're out in the Bay Area. We're here in New York City, Wall Street. The convergence between Silicon Valley and Wall Street is happening in a major way. How has been, you know, out there during this massive tech boom over the last few years during your professional career, how has that kind of informed some of these kind of thoughts on markets and, and the economy and such? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think of it a lot as, you know, these ideas around disruption and democratizing access to whatever it is. And for me, I feel like I'm democratizing access to financial education, financial literacy. This information, for whatever reason, has felt like a closely guarded state secret for a lot of a lot of history. I mean, my mom, my parents are a great example of that. They're highly educated. My dad's a professor at Harvard. You know, both of them are entrepreneurs. And they feel like they need to pay a money manager 2% to manage their money and put it in a bunch of ETFs. And, and I just think that there is something going on along the way with kids, with young adults, that we're not teaching and educating them enough on the basic information. You, you can do a lot of this yourself. You can build, build wealth, build a life that you really want on your own uh, without having to go pay a bunch of people and quote unquote experts a bunch of money to do it for you. So Hill, very nice to meet you. I hope we get to meet in person someday when the world comes back to normal. <laughs> My dad was also a finance professor, which is maybe why you and I are kindred spirits and we're both into the behavioral finance aspect of things. We started on the tape for the same reason that you kind of started tweeting, to educate investors and the consumer, make them smarter, and also add a little bit of entertainment along the way. The question is, for a young guy who's really only seen bull, you know, bull market, how have you been able to become cynical and to ask the right quiet questions? Because it's been a Fed-induced you know, market since you've been uh, looking at the market. So love to get your... Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a great point and a great question. And something I'm frankly very cognizant of. Uh, you know, I, I graduated high school in 2009. So my entire adult life, quote unquote, has been in a bull market, as you say. Uh, you know, notwithstanding the very, very short bear market we might have had in, in March and April. You know, for me, a lot of it comes down to reading history. I read a lot. I love history. I've always been fascinated by it. And so I've just sat down and studied, you know, the history of all of these events and, you know, the, the common phrase around history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, um, always rings true for me. So I just look to history as a way to kind of learn around these things and realize that this bull market that I might have experienced is not how the world always is. Yeah, I saw some of the books that you recommended people read. I always like The Rise of Evolve, Long-Term Capital, When Genius Failed, because it does teach that type of hubris. So the tweet today in particular, Dunning-Kruger effect. Curious, because I totally agree, the false sense of security that some of these investors have. And they make more money and they think they're smarter. And the phrase, don't confuse brains with the bull market. So maybe if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you see people on CNBC, all these other TV shows all the time now saying everyone's a genius in a bull market. And it, it's really true, right? We, we have this market environment that has minted many new uh, self-proclaimed geniuses. And I just wanted to reflect on that and write on it. And I think the Dunning-Kruger effect is a great way to talk about it. You know, it's this whole idea that people with low ability levels tend to dramatically overestimate their ability. And it's a natural human bias. We, we all have it, you know, in things that we are low skilled at it, it just exists. And so then when you 
add to that the fact that there has been a an external reinforcement of the fact that you have skill because the returns in your portfolio look really good, it makes it even worse. It just compounds the problem for most people. You come out of a year like 2020, you know, you were invested in say you were long growth or long long the Nasdaq, you feel like a genius. I was up 200% this year. I'm a I'm an investment guru. I mean, I got a pitch deck from a company the other day that's looking to do kind of a day trading restaurant concept. Like th- these are just things that you see in a bull market only. It's the crypto market has has a similar feel and you know, that's not a knock on on the cryptocurrencies or or Bitcoin at all. I'm I'm personally a Bitcoin bull. But all of these markets, I mean, y- you see it as a human cognitive bias. And then it gets reinforced by the external effects of people performing really well. See, so hell, it's interesting. So I know Danny knows this. I know Dan knows as well. When I saw your tweet today, I thought you were talking about Charles Durning and Diane Kruger. By the way, big fan of Diane Kruger. And Charles <laughs> Durning, is, as Dan knows, was unbelievable in the sting. I suggest you go to Blockbuster this weekend and rent it for the long weekend. It's a <laughs> tremendous movie. But I want to ask you real quick, and, and this is sincere. Listen. You played baseball at the highest level of college athletics, right? You pitcher for Stanford University. I want to ask you this question. Uh, you had great success, but one of the things you really focus on is that grand slam home run that you gave up in one of the games. And I don't bring that up to be a jerk, not by any stretch. I would submit that might have been one of the best things that ever happened to you for a number of different reasons. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It, you know, it's all about learning from your failures. That, that's what life is. You guys are a lot older than me. No offense. You, you've had a lot more learning moments than me, I'm sure, during the course of your careers, lives, whatever it might be. And I think when you look back on life and you reflect on the moments that were most transformational for you, it tends to be the failures, not the successes. The successes are great. We all want those moments of glory. Uh, but for me, when I reflect on my own baseball career, what did I learn the most from? It was that grand slam. I mean, you see it in my Twitter bio. I said I gave up a grand slam on ESPN and I'm still waiting for it to land. And I can kind of laugh about it now, but at the time it was a horrible experience. But now looking back on it, when you reflect on it, it's what did you learn from those moments? It's, you know, your, your hardest falls and the ability to get back up. And I got the next guy out, which is kind of what I learned from it. You have to just be able to put your head down and come back from all of those dark moments. So I also saw that you um, really appreciate great thinkers. And I want to kind of conjoin your two things. You mentioned Elon Musk is a great thinker, and I'm not going to challenge that. <laughs> but the people that own his stock are falling prey to the Dunning-Kruger effect. So how do you prevent investors from following thinkers that might not understand what a company is worth, but just follow people blindly? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I always get a lot of heat when I am positive on Elon Musk on Twitter. Uh, there's a massive anti-Elon, anti-Tesla movement, as I'm sure you guys know. I separate all of it. Yeah, I, I think like in an environment where everything is going up, you have this like stocks only go up feel of everything. I, I just think you need to be cognizant of what you don't know, ultimately. That is the ultimate learning from all of this. It's not don't invest in stocks. It's not don't buy Tesla at this valuation. It's not don't buy Bitcoin at this valuation, whatever the thing may be that you think is high. None of us really know where any of this is going. And that's part of the power here is we can comment on it. We can say valuations feel crazy, but I don't really know. And no one really does. And so I think the bigger thing is what, what do I really know? What do I know? Well, what have I studied extremely hard? What is my circle of competence? And then what do I not know? And what am I just taking a guess at? 
And sometimes there's room for that in a portfolio, right? You, you have kind of your core positions and then you have your things where it's more of a flyer. And I know it's a high risk, high reward play, but I like it or I like the story or I like renewable energy and feeling like I'm invested in that future, whatever it might be. I, I think the biggest thing is just know what you know, know what you don't know and be ruthless in terms of identifying the boundaries of that circle of competence. Well, you know, so uh, we, we really appreciate you coming on today. Um, you know, you and I have been talking and Guy for a while about figuring out ways to collaborate. You took Twitter by storm, at least finance Twitter, which is uh, can be pretty dull here and there, you know, and a lot of the, the themes that you kind of hit on are things that, you know, Guy and I and Danny, we've been in this business a long time. And sometimes you get in your kind of rut and it's really kind of hard to kind of think about things in a different way after you've been doing them the same way for so long. So I, I really have appreciated your feeds. I've appreciated looking at the sort of people that you engage with on Twitter. And I just feel great about you being able to participate in what we're doing and on the tape. So thanks. Uh, you will be back. Uh, we look forward to working with you again in the future. So I just wanted to kind of give you a thanks from us. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. It was great having Sawhill with us. And it was great doing our maiden voyage of on the tape. We went on the tape. We went off the tape with Sawhill. We're going to do this again. It was a great conversation. Danny Moses, Dan Nathan, thank you. Listen, subscribe to us in the podcast stores on the tape. Follow us on Twitter, on the tape pod. Follow Sawhill at, at Sawhill Bloom. Dan Nathan at Risk Reversal. Danny Moses at DMoses34. 34, of course, being his number in baseball. You can follow me if you want at Guy Adami. I don't know. By the way, that Charles Durning reference was stellar by me, if I do say so myself. Thanks for your time, folks. See you again next week. <laughs>